name is Tammy Allen, and I work for DNV. I am the host for this podcast series, High Reliability, Myth or Possibility? Thank you for joining us for the second in our podcast series, High Reliability, Myth or Possibility? In the first podcast, we introduced our listeners to the history of high reliability and the evolution of collaborative high reliability and two myths that Scott Griffith was able to bust. The primary goal of this podcast series is to break down the taxonomy and model of becoming a highly reliable organization, to educate our listeners on the benefits of training to become a collaborative high reliability organization. This podcast will discuss just culture, and the necessity of developing a collaborative just culture program. Today, we also have Scott Griffith joining us to answer some of these questions. Um, Scott, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure, Tammy. Scott, for our listeners, I want to start by discussing just culture and its history and how it differs from collaborative just culture. I know that Just Culture gained some popularity in the late 1990s as a human resource philosophy that utilized an algorithm to categorize employee behaviors with an aspiration to improve culture and manage the workforce. This algorithm was a complex tool that was subject to unreliability. It also did not consider the system that humans are working with and in. And with this philosophy, sometimes cultures improved, however many times they did not. And I'd like to start today, Scott, with another myth and see if you can bust this myth. As long as our staff is trained in the algorithm, we are a just culture organization. Scott, what do you think about that statement? Wow, Tammy, there's a lot to speak to uh, that you've just said. So, so um, first of all, I, I will say at the beginning that just culture, like most scientific advancements, will evolve over time. And, and I played a significant role in the early days of just culture development. And uh, I, I would say that just culture uh, became a philosophy that was tied to a tool or an algorithm. And I think it is a myth that just because an organization or just because an individual has had training in the use of a tool or an algorithm, that that qualifies them to be a just cultural organization. One one of the principles that we've learned over the years through quality management, particularly the ISO approach, is that if you don't document, monitor, and measure then how do we know that you're actually doing what you say you do? So the principles that we've embedded in the collaborative just culture program, which is distinguished to be distinguished from just culture at large, is that we require documentation, monitoring and measuring, and then an independent audit every two years. And that's where DNB Healthcare has come in and, and taken on that role. So an organization that is committed to something like just culture, they must be able to document, monitor, and measure to prove its effectiveness. Time and time again, 
we see organizations that focus on uh, a tool like an algorithm that manages human behavior, but they're, they're not documenting whether the tool's being used reliably. Um, and we don't think that that's, that necessarily qualifies an organization to claim that they are just culture. And so the next question that I have for you is, when we talk about just culture, how did this evolve into collaborative just culture? Yeah, so collaborative just culture, as I mentioned just a moment or two uh, ago, combines elements from the principles of workplace justice and with the with the principles of quality management, that is to document, monitor, and measure, and then principles of collaboration, which takes draws heavily from the program that I designed in aviation. Uh, beginning in 1994, called the Aviation Safety Action Program. And the the ASAP program, as they're called, uh, there are over 767 programs today in the airline industry. Uh, All of them are audited to a common standard. So when I started developing the Collaborative Just Culture program approach, I took elements from Just Culture philosophy, quality management principles, and the ASAP program in aviation. We combine them into a more evolved approach, which is documented, monitored, and measured, and then independently audited. Cut, I think this also might be a good place to talk about, we're talking about algorithms and training, et cetera. Um, I know many different programs that have been developed do kind of like a one and done training, if you will. And then those individuals are expected to incorporate that training throughout an entire organization. How is this different? The, the, one of the bedrock principles of high reliability is that if you train people, that training must be done to a level of proficiency. And proficiency is different than the term that's often used in healthcare called competency. You can be competent today. I can be trained as a nurse to uh, be able to uh, insert an IV and draw blood or start an infusion pump. But that doesn't mean that I'm proficient in that activity. So uh, I've seen, and I am non-clinical, Tammy, so correct me if I say this incorrectly, but a nurse that's trained to start an IV might be qualified to start the IV or competent, you know, at, at some point in time. But if that nurse hasn't performed that activity on tiny babies in a NICU, he or she might not be proficient in it in that environment. So proficiency involves an element of time. If you're going to train people in the concepts of just culture, they have to be trained up to a level that's that's monitored and measured, and that will degrade over time unless they've had additional training. So in our model, proficiency-based training requires reevaluation and additional work that goes on uh, every so often to be able to monitor uh, the levels of proficiency. And that's a that's a key difference here. I think, Scott, it's, I'll, I'll put myself as an example. I mentioned on the last podcast that my background was in healthcare and, and nursing, and um, I've done OB and ER and, and some different areas. And 
definitely was competent, but I think I've been out of that for long enough now that I'm not proficient. Um, <laughs> and and that, that's a huge difference. And when we think about our family members and et cetera, we want those people caring for us to be proficient. Well, that's true. And, and you know, it's a concept that's well established in aviation. I used to be uh, an airline pilot, uh, the chief safety officer at, at the time, the world's largest airline. But uh, I haven't flown since 2010. So uh, even though I am at one time was qualified in 767 aircraft, Boeing 767, you wouldn't want to get on that aircraft with me today unless I had been able to go back and get requalified to a level of proficiency. And furthermore, in aviation, pilots that are qualified to fly a particular aircraft have to do so in a time period. It's usually 90 days. And they have to even furthermore be qualified to be able to, to fly at night. So all of those require levels of proficiency that are monitored and measured. So in our model, a collaborative just culture program has multiple elements. It has executive commitment. We need to make sure that the executive team is not just committed in in, in words, but in, in actual actions. So they have to be able to fund it, support it. We, we bring labor associations into this. They have to be invited to participate. We have policies that are documented describing how the program is run. And part of the documentation includes training to different levels, uh, introductory levels for frontline staff, higher levels of, of training for managers and supervisors, and then more extensive training to proficiency for in-house subject matter experts. We also have requirements for certain tools to be used, and we also have requirements for sustainment plans to be in place. So all of that comprises the collaborative just culture programs that DNV will then come in and independently audit. And with that, Scott, I know that I have been through the training and um, definitely see the benefits. And with this podcast and the next podcast, I want to break down the Just Culture, Collaborative Just Culture program. And with this model and sequence of reliability, I know that human reliability is divided into human performance and human behaviors. There's a very distinct difference. Can you explain the difference? And also, should these be addressed in a specific order? Which order should that be? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Tammy. And let me let me start at the beginning. The 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 difference between human performance and human behavior, which you just asked about, is part of what we call the sequence of reliability. And and collaborative just culture fits into the the higher level of collaborative high reliability. So. The sequence involves first seeing and understanding risk, followed by managing system reliability, followed by managing human reliability, which has two components, which we will discuss. And then the third element of reliability is organization reliability. Well, collaborative just culture, when we distinguish between human performance and human behavior, it's, it's for a very good reason. It's not appropriate to label a behavior if we don't understand all the factors 
that may have contributed to the human being in that behavior. So, for example, uh, we would, as a parent, you would make a distinction between a small child who crosses the street without permission on a busy road and a teenager who has a different level of perception of risk and understanding. So for a small child, you might punish that child only to elicit some sort of behavioral response. But to a teenager, you would you would approach it very, very differently. You would assess, did they understand, did they see and understand the risk involved in that? Well, performance shaping factors or human performance involve knowledge, skills, abilities, and proficiencies. It involves system influences. It involves cultural and environmental influences and other elements such as competing priorities and, and, uh, and other cultural aspects. If we're going to assess and, and, and respond to a particular behavior, we must first understand those factors, those performance shaping factors, before we're able to then assess and respond to the behavior appropriately. All too often we see organizations um, jump straight to the behavior without understanding uh, the, the, those factors. So just one quick example, uh, someone makes a risky choice in the work environment. Well, if we didn't train that individual properly or they weren't using the proper tools or they didn't have a thorough understanding of the environment, responding to the behavior isn't going to get us the results we, we desire. We think it's true in parenting. We think it's true in the workplace and certainly in our everyday lives. So with human performance, there can be system and performance influences, which you just mentioned, that need to be assessed and managed. Can you break that down a little bit more? Kind of how that's set up, how the training is on the human performance. Yeah, and I can give you several healthcare examples. Um, it used to be, um, well, it probably still is, for personal protective equipment inside healthcare. You require uh, healthcare equipment to be used under certain conditions. When, when you're in the presence of bloodborne pathogens or a, a virus or a bacterial infection, we require certain PPP to be in place. Well, you might have a rule that says you're, you must wear an N95 mask. Well, in the early days of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, hospitals were running out of high-quality N95 masks and respirators. So nurses and other professionals were, were forced to reuse those, those pieces of equipment. Or in the cases where they weren't available, they would have to default to surgical masks or even cloth masks, all of those which had lesser level of reliability. But if we're going to assess the behavior, the choice to use a non-approved mask, we have to first look at, well, do we even have the equipment available? Was it, was it even available to the healthcare institution? That's one example. Uh, we will always assess behavior, but we will do so in light of the risk and the systems and the environment that influences those behaviors. So uh, I can put you in a room, for example, and test your knowledge and ability. So we can give you something to read and then a quiz on whether or not you understood it and whether you, comp you took that into uh, 
comprehension. But if externally I make the room loud or noisy or uncomfortable, let's say you're sitting in an uncomfortable chair or a loud jackhammer is going off or the room is very hot or very cold, well, your ability to comprehend and perform will be degraded because of those external influences. Well, we see this happen in healthcare. Uh, if you're working in a busy ER on a Saturday night when you have uh, maybe a, a large mass transit accident and you're flooded with patients, now all of a sudden people become task saturated, people become more prone to error and more prone to risky choices. So in those situations, jumping to the behavior when someone may or may not follow a rule is, is out of sequence. It doesn't make sense until we understand the risk and the system and the influences that affect behaviors. So correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but I think many times in, in multiple industries, we tend to go directly to the behavior. And I think the one thing that collaborative just culture does and your sequence of reliability is said is to say, start with the performance. And that's what you've stated. Now, with those performances, we need to evaluate it, just like you said, knowledge, skills, abilities, proficiency, those type of things. You mentioned um, competing priorities. Can you elaborate on the competing priorities, what they might be? And then an example of competing priorities. Oh, sure. I can give an example that we've experienced almost every day. Um, so let's say that I'm a, normally a very conscientious driver and I try to drive safely and I have two hands on the wheel. Well, if if all of a sudden I'm taking my daughter to school and we're running late, let's just say uh, something happened. We had an accident and I spilled the cereal on the breakfast table and I cleaned it up and it puts us late. Now we get in the car and if I don't hurry, she's going to walk in to school late for an important test. Well, I drive over the speed limit to get her there. Well, I normally see myself as very rule compliant and safe, but if I feel compelled to, to meet another objective to get my daughter to school on time, I might drive over the speed limit. Well. Put that into an organizational environment. People will cut corners throughout the day. Good people will cut corners throughout the day with all the right intentions. And the challenging part about human beings is we learn most often from direct experience. So if we cut a corner once and nothing bad happens, and if we cut a corner twice and nothing bad happens, Pretty soon, we'll start to think nothing bad is going to happen to me. That's how we see hand hygiene compliance rates be as low as they often are. Individuals think that, well, I didn't wash my hands, but the patient didn't get an infection or the patient didn't keel over and fall out of the hospital bed. So we do things because we're rushed. We do things because we're task saturated. We do things because we have more important matters to take care of that also require our attention. So humans tend to drift into noncompliance largely because of perceptions of risk and competing priorities. And the sum total of that is what we call performance shaping factors. 
So with this, and I'm, I'm going to stick with the performance piece for just a moment. If we see, for example, we evaluate a certain situation and determine that it had to do with an individual's skills and abilities, then we know that we need to step back and we need to improve their skills, abilities, and proficiency. That's right. And Tammy, that's a that's a shared responsibility between the organization and the employee. So uh, we have nurses and doctors and pharmacists and therapists and all sorts of certified and licensed individuals. And they have the responsibility to maintain their own licensing requirements. We, we understand that. But we also have the obligation to train them how we want them to perform their jobs as nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and the like in our organization. So, so that, that is a shared responsibility. The, the way that a nurse calculates dosing in one facility and the process by which that nurse does that may be different in different locations and different employers. So that's how traveling nurses oftentimes uh, report that they experience uh, different ways of performing the same job task in different facilities. So that's a shared responsibility. So there's a piece of performance shaping factors that is on the employee, and there's a, another piece that's on the employer. And, and that's where we come together to collaborate to make sure that we it's a shared responsibility. I want to take it to the next step. So in in this response, uh, reliability response guide, we talk about the human performance. We go through that. Is it a knowledge, skills, ability? Is there uh, uh, competing priorities or perception of risk? Once we've evaluated that, then we go into the behavior piece. Now, that's where I want to put the rest of our focus on on this podcast is is the behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that, and then oh, break that yeah. down for us, if you would? Yeah, absolutely. And and any parent knows that 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 we must manage behavior. And oh, by the way, for all of your listeners, I, I do often compare parenting to to the work environment. And, and please understand, I'm not saying employees are like children. We are all like children. The the the, the way that humans, even adults, see, understand, and manage risk. We, we, are, we are all similar in the sense that we, we, we look to the consequences of our actions, whether we're small children or adults. So when, we, when I say that every parent knows behavior must be managed, it's, it, 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 it's true. We, 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 but, but on our best day as parents, we first assess the risk of a child's behavior. I, and I think I've used this in other examples on the previous podcast. If a child is struggling in school, let's say we have, to be very specific, I'll make this up, a 12-year-old child in the sixth grade, and all of a sudden, a straight-A student has become something less. They're, they're struggling to pass. If we jump straight to the behavior and punish them for not making good grades, we might get them to respond and work harder. But what if the problem isn't how hard they're working? What if the problem is they're having trouble seeing the, the, 
you know, show my age. I used to, we used to call it a chalkboard, but uh, I don't know that they use chalk in classes anymore, but, but they're having trouble seeing the computer screen or seeing the, the whiteboard. What if the problem is a performance shaping factor related to their physical conditions or their ability to see or hear? What if they're starting to lose processing ability? Well, if we punish a child for the behavior of not making good grades, we've completely missed the mark in that regard. So again, we would first try to see and understand the risk, understand the performance shaping factors, and it might be that they're not spending enough time studying, in which case we could manage that through what would be described in the workplace as a performance improvement plan. It might be that we put our children on a performance improvement plan. We're going to say, when you come home from school, we're going to feed you, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to take, you're going to take an hour, and you're going to put away your phones, put away all external stimuli, and we're going to sit down with you and help you get started on your homework. Well, that might be one solution. But jumping to the behavior it is rarely the solution without looking at the risk, the system, the performance shaping factors, and then assessing the behavior. Now, when we get to the place where we've done that, we've looked at the risk, the system, and all the performance shaping factors, then we turn our attention to the behavior itself. And the behavior itself really comes in two categories. This is uh, very, very straightforward, but it's something people should understand. There are only two categories of behavior, human errors and choices. Human errors and choices. Human errors can be defined as the inadvertent action, that is doing or not doing something that you did not intend to do or not do. So an inadvertent, we call it a slip or a lapse. So that would be a form of, of human error. But choices, that is driving over the speed limit, usually isn't a human error. Usually we know we're doing it and we're okay with it because we think we're in a safe place. Not washing our hands for 15 seconds and singing happy birthday twice, according to what the CDC suggests. We usually know we're not doing it that way and we think we're in a safe place. Those are the things that people do every day, multiple times every day, with no intention to cause harm, by the way. But, but it's an active choice that we make. Now, there can be several types of choices. And in a collaborative just culture, we would respond to those choices differently based on the choice itself. So we might break a rule, and it's the right thing to do. And we, as an organization, would agree with the, the worker doing that. We would say that would be a justifiable breach of a rule, policy, or procedure. That doesn't happen very often, but it might happen. The other uh, option might be that we, we, we broke a rule because there was no other choice. It was impossible to follow the rule in that circumstance. Uh, we have examples of that under extreme conditions. Uh, people that are supposed to show up and clock in on time if you're if you're stuck in a hurricane or a tornado knocks out the bridge ahead of you or you can't physically get in the building that's an impossibility so that might be another way that you would not follow a rule policy procedure the most common choice that involves not following a rule policy procedure is what we call at risk choice 
that's where we think we're in a safe place, but we cut a corner or we don't follow the rule or procedure precisely. There are two or three other categories of, of choices, such as um, a reckless choice, which is the conscious disregard for a substantial and unjustifiable risk. And then there's two other culpability behaviors we call knowingly causing unjustifiable harm and purpose to cause unjustifiable harm. And we should leave those two for another time. Uh, but the line that we often discuss is the term reckless choice. And that's different than an at-risk choice. A reckless choice is, is usually dealt with with consideration for discipline or punishment. Scott, one thing along these lines also, when you talk about, we, we all make choices every day. Um, and I know I've talked to my kids about making choices. Those choices that we make may not be reckless, but also we may be internally with maybe not even realizing it, are taking at-risk choices. You know, you gave an example a while ago of driving over the speed limit. Sometimes we kind of have an outcome bias, as you talk about. We, we've driven over the speed limit so many times that, and we've had a, a, a not bad outcome. So we see that risk is low and continue to do it. Those are some at-risk choices, but they're also done in healthcare and other industries where maybe we do things every day and do not have a bad outcome. So we look at that risk and just think that we can continue doing that. Yeah, so, so, so the one thing that healthcare has in common with other high-consequence industries is that you have people working inside systems. And it's what we call socio-technical people and systems working together to produce outputs or outcomes. So driving is actually a very good example. Uh, studies have shown that on any given day in the U.S., 81% of drivers are driving at or above the speed limit. Now, we can debate that you know, in local uh, instances, but in general, even in school zones, you will find people driving over the speed limit where we perceive the risk to be higher in a school zone. But people will still drive over the speed limit, sometimes by human error, most often by human choice. So what, what we know about humans is that when we cut a corner here or we, or we uh, cut a corner there, we look at what the outcome is, and we learn from that experience. Sometimes we learn the wrong lessons from a successful outcome. And so in healthcare, it's quite common for people not to wash their hands the full 15 seconds. Two patient identifiers. I've seen people come into hospital rooms, call the patient out by their name. Now, they may have taken care of that patient multiple times, and they're just addressing them, and then they ask them for a date of birth. We need two independent ways to identify the patient. Well, calling that patient by their name wasn't the right way to do it. You ask the patient for their name. I've had pharmacists say, hey, hello, Mr. Griffith, what's your date of birth again? Well, they assumed the first identifier, they asked me for the second. Well, what if I have a twin brother whose name is also Mr. Griffith? Well, I don't, but if I did, my twin hypothetical twin brother might 
might lead to the wrong medication being administered. We have the same date of birth, for example. So those are the things that 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 people do very often. And what we we know is that when bad things happen and we go back and we review it, there's a tendency to to label those choices with bad outcomes as reckless. And and what we don't do is see it when it's done with the positive outcomes because it doesn't get reported. Healthcare has a very strong outcome bias when it comes to reporting. Notice that with most hospitals, we have patient safety event reporting. Events meaning, means something bad has happened. What we should be calling those systems are risk reporting. We want people to report the risk long before it becomes an event. So we've sort of mislabeled the, our reporting systems, especially in healthcare. We did the same thing in aviation until we started to recognize that we were incentivizing people to wait until bad things happen. For example, you've heard the term near miss, which actually comes from aviation. I prefer the term near hit because it tells you what's really going to happen when planes collide. Well, we want pilots to and air traffic controllers to report not just when the plane gets within a certain distance, but any risk that puts the airplane in a position where that risk could someday happen. So we don't want to wait for a near hit. We want people to report anything that involves risk, and then we assess that risk. So let's go back to the driving example just for a moment. How do you distinguish between the at-risk choice to drive over the speed limit and the reckless choice to drive over the speed limit. Now, on any given day, as I mentioned, studies have shown that about 81% of us are driving over the speed limit. If we're driving about five miles an hour over the speed limit, Tammy, do you think most people would consider that to be at risk or reckless? I think most people would consider it at risk. Now, if I keep going up and say 10 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, 40 miles an hour. At some point, we would all agree it's reckless. What's right? that threshold? Absolutely. Now, that here's the interesting, interesting challenge. That threshold may be different for different people. If you're a race car driver, you might have a higher risk tolerance for that risk. If you're like me, not a race car driver, you might have a lower tolerance for that risk. We can't let every individual, every every child, every teenager, or every employee set their own tolerance. Even though they all have their own level of comfort, it's the organization that really has the responsibility to set where that tolerance is. And it's easier said than done, because an organization will say, you must wash your hands according to the CDC guidelines. But the organization won't see when a nurse is only washing their hands for 10 seconds instead of 15. They won't see the risk until something bad happens. So teaching an organization how to assess the difference between at-risk choice and reckless choice takes some training. It takes some proficiency testing, and it takes a repetitive uh, uh, evaluation. And, it, and it's not something that every manager will do correctly the first few times. It has to be taught, it has to be monitored, it has to be measured. 
that's where this collaborative just culture differs from other just culture approaches, which have been essentially one and done training with a tool. This approach really says we're going to train managers and supervisors to one level, and we're going to train subject matter experts to a higher level, and we're going to put in a process in place that ensures the organization gets a reliable response every time. So all the things that we've talked about up till now uh, are, are embedded in the collaborative just culture program qualification standards. And that's where DNV will come in and, and audit those organizations. Thank you, Scott. Next podcast, I hope everyone is able to listen in on. We're going to continue the path of collaborative just culture. And then we're also going to give a couple of real world examples that we've all heard in media and kind of break it down and how things would have been different if they would have had a collaborative just culture program in place. And I think that'll be eye-opening for many of our listeners for us to be able to do that. Another kind of thought-provoking comment that I will make is if we polled individuals that are in healthcare, any industry, let's say, would they prefer to work for an organization that has a collaborative just culture program in place or the traditional method? I know what my answer would be. <laughs> if I was involved in one of these events like we're talking about, I would hope that my employer would look at this in this sequenced way. Was it a skills, knowledge, and abilities? Did it have something to do with some competing priorities or a perception of risk? I would hope they would step through that, um, even policies, et cetera. That's, that's what I would want if I was an employee, and I would think that this would also help organizations with their retention rate if they had this type of model. So, Scott, thank you for this conversation today. I greatly appreciate it. It's always great speaking with you. And um, I hope that our listeners continue with the next one. We're going to do some more thought-provoking thoughts. And like I said, uh, look at some real-world events and how those would have been different if they would have had this in place. So thank you to our listeners again, and thank you, Scott. My pleasure, Tammy. I look forward to the next one.